Hello, Daniel. How's it going? Uh, it's good, Evan. Just uh, spent the morning before work wrapping up some last minute Christmas shopping. How about you? Oh, I, I probably do need to do that. My dad has sent me his list for my mobs. <laughs> um, I've spent the morning on client calls. So um, and running the morning uh, school drop off. So it's been fun. <laughs> All right. Well, um, we're running a little behind schedule today due to me. Uh, so we're going to jump right in. Um, Daniel, want to take us over to our hot topics today? Yeah, let's jump right in. I have the honor of introducing our first guest today. Uh, so she has 45 plus years of healthcare industry as a registered nurse. I think this might be our first RN on the call, which is really exciting to have some uh, diverse background, diverse experience. Uh, and the clinical background has covered emergency medicine, utilization management, case management, billing compliance, revenue integrity, uh, and really focusing in on government audits. And so uh, currently, she's part of the Cedars-Sinai Government Audit Program, I think also known as GAP, uh, in the Compliance and Revenue Integrity Department. Welcome, Betty Johnson. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Daniel. It's nice to be here. All right. I get the pleasure of introducing our second guest, who has a lot of accolades, um, for, current president of the Western Region Ahima um, Group, a former SoCal HFMA president, a former Payer Relations Committee for the California um, Healthcare Association or Hospital Association, sorry, and then um, currently a principal consultant with um, Lash Consulting Group. I think I got that right formerly with Cedars as well in the Compliance and Revenue Integrity Department um, and has held many, many different director roles throughout uh, several health systems. So welcome, uh, Rick Black. Uh, thank you, Evan. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining. All right. Well, our third guest today really needs no introduction. Um, they are a four-time guest, I believe now. Um, they also have filled in as a co-host why Daniel was out on his vacation slash honeymoon. Um, welcome back, Gretchen Case. Good morning. Happy to be here, especially with these characters. All right, so we can jump right into this episode. Uh, similarly to episode eight where I was out, Evan and Gretchen had a conversation about revenue integrity and all of Gretchen's plans, ideas, and uh, <laughs> uh, exciting adventures in the RI space. And today we're going to be jumping back in, focusing on one of the pillars, GAP. So maybe Gretchen, you could give us a little bit more background on what GAP is, how it came about, and where are the industry drivers for this? Absolutely. Yes. As you mentioned, this is one of the eight pillars that Wilshire has designed as a, as a complete revenue integrity program. And sometimes this function lives in other areas, but this was our experience at Cedars-Sinai. We had a lot of success with it and a lot of fun with it, actually. Um, it, we call it the GAP, Government Audit Program. And the genesis of it was really this. We, the RACs, um, recovery audit contractors that everybody knows about if you live in hospitals or work with physicians, uh, were initially entered hospitals through the coding department, through HIM, because they were looking at DRG validation. And then suddenly they pivoted more towards appropriateness of patient class, admission criteria, et cetera. And HIM was left a little bit uh, unsure as to what to do. And then the, the other issue was they were coming sort of fast and furious and people were had stuff on spreadsheets and spreadsheets were being tossed everywhere and you know nobody was quite sure. The other issue was financial reporting. We weren't able to really identify what our risks were financially. So, you know, the CFO at Cedars would say, well, how much is at risk? And everybody was like, you know, I'm really not sure. You know, some things were put at gross charges. Then, you know, we didn't know which ones we won. We didn't know which ones we lost. We didn't know what the issues were. So we, as we spoke with the then um, vice president of PFS, uh, Patricia Cattell at, at Cedars, and I said, let me, let me let me take a stab at this. And that's when I sort of recruited Betty from her role in case management. And Rick and I were already working together in sort of the compliance side. And we decided we put some infrastructure around this. And we'll talk today about some of those actual steps that we went through and then also some of the stories behind it. But we started with uh, we started with with. Um, a, a mission statement that took us a while to write. And while I'm not a huge fan of missions, I do actually 
they're very important, but I hate writing them. I think we actually achieved a very succinct message with this one. And Rick, I know you always are sort of the keeper of our, our statement. Would you? <laughs> okay. Um, yes, I am. And of course, now I had it all ready to go and I moved the page and I found it. All right. So <laughs> if I look away, everybody understands. Um, the mission of the Government Audits Program, GAP, committee is to coordinate processes related to external government audits and reviews in order to improve care of patients and reduce risk to the organization. The GAP committee will review audit findings and identify issues in the delivery of care and or financial and compliance risks. GAP will prepare and strategically disseminate robust and meaningful data, create corrective action plans as necessary, develop and implement an escalation process, help the organization make systemic changes and ensure timely defense of our at-risk dollars. The committee will coordinate via the task force with CS Medicine, the Crimson Group, corporate compliance, and others as needed. The stakeholders include senior leadership, corporate compliance, CS Medicine, Crimson, patient financial services, admitting and registration, case management, health information, compliance and revenue integrity, and uh, physician billing services and hospital clinical departments. A lot of words. <laughs> so thank you for reading that. But it does really um, speak to where we were going to focus. And it made us sound really organized because initially it was more like the bad news bears of, of, of audit and compliance. But we hung in there until we sort of really figured it out. And I, I think in terms of our pillar structure, this is really where the clinical component is needed. You have audits as well, like you're doing charge audits and so forth. But this is where you speak to the medical necessity of the interventions at hand and you defend your positions with that knowledge. So that's why we needed someone like Betty as a part of the department and team. And we leveraged, you know, relationships with other clinical leaders as well as needed. Um, so I think in the pillar, that's where this really it speaks to. Mm -hmm. Hey, Betty, what um, types of audits fall into a GAP program currently? Well, <laughs> seems like everything that we do. Um, what was interesting, as Gretchen said, when we first started, it was in response to the RACs who were looking at patient status. So should you have been an inpatient or Medicare, you know, come up with this wonderful observation status. And then the two midnight rule came in. So things sort of shifted. and they could no longer focus on patient status. So then they really went after your clinical practices. So let's say, you know, the RAC would um, request 115 cases of joint replacements to see if you met the medical necessity. Or, you know, Noridian would do one of their target probe and educates on um, pain management, epidural injections, facet joint injections. So you you went through this whole range of things um, of while you we still needed to be working on having the patient status right because of the two midnight rule. That was more of a periodic audit to see if you were doing it right. We also now were faced with, we've got all these physicians out there doing all these things that we don't pre-review before they do them, but we have to make sure that they've got all their ducks in a row so that if those cases do get audited, we could be confident that we met the medical necessity based upon local coverage determinations called LCDs, national coverage determinations, which are the NCDs that CMS actually puts out. And that's an interesting thing to try to do again, when you're not pre, you're not doing like commercial health plans do. You're not saying, show me all this documentation so I know this hip replacement is being done right you have to defend it retrospectively. Thanks for that. I think it just gives the listeners a different uh, vantage point as Gretchen's covered Gap a little bit in episode eight, season one, for those who want to go back and take a listen. 
Um, I think it, after hearing the mission and who's all involved, knowing kind of that little retro scope of what you guys are trying to cover, which is really not even little, it's ginormous at this point from what it sounded like. It's funny you say that. So we also, Betty reminded me, we also included all government audits. What we found was there was inconsistency with the response responses to external agencies, uh, both in content, quality, et cetera, and timeliness. So we would often see denials due to lack of response and so forth. We felt like that was something we was inexcusable. We weren't going to continue to let that happen. We also found that requests and things came in through different ports into the organization. Some went to PFS, some went to CFO, some went to HIM, you know, so forth. So we said, here are all the audit entities, A, you know, Max, Rex, ZPix, OIG, all of it. We're going to funnel it through this process and we're going to manage the responses and we're going to, we're going to quantify our risk and, and then obviously identify issues as we go forward and escalate those up. Um, one of the tools that we used as well, that we just brought it right in, because you have several things that you can leverage. And one of those was the Pepper Report, which is uh, issued quarterly and for all hospitals. And it gives you some benchmarking um, relative to sort of some national statistics and some local statistics and that sort of thing. Um, and I, so it's, oh, yeah, thanks for that. It's the program for payment patterns and electronic electronic report and um we we would include our him partners in this there was one of the key people that was a member of the steering committee and or the task force and uh she would review our report and escalate issues as needed and and these were we did sort of we ended up landing at like a quarterly meeting of the steering committee which included all of those folks that we mentioned earlier and we would review certain things and Part of that meeting was a review of the pepper data, but we would we wouldn't go through it in great detail. We'd only highlight the issues that we thought were salient and trends. Um, Rick, I know you did a lot of work with our with our pepper stuff. Anything to add to that? Well, you certainly hit the foundation of the pepper report. What we tried to do was, without killing ourselves, was to look at the, these quarterly reports. And the best thing for me was the graphs, because what it showed was the 80th percentile. And if you were above the 80th percentile, you were at risk for overcoding. If you were below the 20th percentile, you were at risk for undercoding. So really, you didn't want to be in the middle. You wanted to be as close to the top or as close to the 80th percentile as you could be, because then you know you were doing a good job. But this also this also ties in with that's what they thought. Now we needed to make sure that our documentation was accurate. And that's where Betty came in reviewing all these cases. Yeah. What we found was oftentimes the work that we were doing internally was also identified in the pepper report not everything but some things were identified there and so it was kind of a nice check and balance to what we were looking at internally yes yeah and i was thinking too you know we were talking about the different kinds of audits and the different audit groups <laughs> we also found and that was one of the great things about having uh the gap was we found that certain um, audit entities were asking for the same accounts to be audited, sometimes for the same reason and sometimes for a different reason. And this really, it was a wake-up call. Um, and we would push back and say, no, the regulations say one or the other of you can do it. We've already done it for this one. You'll have to look for other things. It's a good point. We did find a lot of overlap. Can you guys share who all what who all uh, and what types of roles should be part of a, a initial gap structure? So if our listeners are thinking, oh, hey, we really want to take this portion of the Wilshire Pillars and best practice that Cedars developed, 
what who should be included in that initial component as they're starting to get that foundational component? Great question. We brought Betty in as the, the lead of this new arm or pillar of Rev Integrity. So I think you really want somebody with the clinical background to be sort of in charge because again, this is where the clinical becomes financial. So I we always laugh that Betty taught me some of the clinical side. I taught her the billing side. And so we can met, met in the middle, but I think that is, is key. Um, we had, we had other members as well, Betty, I know you're going to say something. No, I was just going to say that Gretchen said, it's that, you know, um, getting the clinical person then also can help other clinicians understand that, yes, while we're talking about billing compliance in a sense, that is, that is based upon the clinical decisions. There are clinical decisions that you're making. And of course, the problem is you always hear clinicians say, I don't care about the bill. I just want to take care of patients. And probably when I came to Gretchen, I sort of had the same theory. As you know, I always say, I went to the dark side, you know, and I spoke Clint and you spoke Finn and that doesn't work. And that's what you have to overcome. And I think best that a clinical person talk to clinicians about that. Yeah. Once they get an understanding of the, the financial side, which Gretchen was patient with me. But again, I think that's very important to be able to have a clinical person because you're going to get a lot of pushback from clinicians that say, I, I don't want to hear about the bill. I don't want to understand that. Yep. And they have to. Do you think that it's important to, to have somebody with a coding background as part of the team as well? I just, you know, I know not being a coder, I keep telling Gretchen, I need to go do this test that sits <laughs> over here so I can be a coder. <laughs> um, that that's important because I, I know like from a, being a former, you know, revenue cycle director, it, I got pushed back all the time from my coding team saying, well, you're not a coder, so you shouldn't be leading us and shouldn't be guiding us. It's the same conversation that a lot of clinicians have is if you don't have a clinical title behind your name, you shouldn't be providing advice. So I just wonder if that's the same type of pushback that the team may be received from, you know, because even coding to nursing and nursing and coding to physicians, sometimes I've seen those internal struggles. Amongst <laughs> so I just trying to think about how you guys well rounded out your program and how, you know, Gretchen helped me round out my former programs as well as we develop some of that auditing component, it, you know, coding was integral to it, but it might not be for an, a, another organization. Just so it's a great question, Evan. And I think that I, I understand it completely. We were lean and mean. So we put we put the gap in place with the minimal amount of infrastructure that we needed to pull it off. So we had the manager. Um, I was involved, obviously, as, you know, with one of the pillars. Rick was very to talk about some of the gap analyses that we did and why we did it that way. Um, and then <laughs> clerical person involved who managed our database, which we also um, implemented. We had several other former nurse case manager, um, uh, what did we end up calling denial management coordinators, something like that. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, again, the people that could defend us in writing clinically with our clinical denials. So it wasn't a huge team, but where we leveraged the relationships was on the task force. So we had Colleen Saldi, who is sort of a coding guru uh, at, at Cedar sinai She's now, um, I believe, associate director of, of coding at Cedars. And she um, would do the PEPPER review. And that's how we pulled in the coding component. And then when, when trends would arise, like Betty was talking about knee arthroscopy or knee surgery or whatever, if there were particular CPT codes that they were picking on, which happened a lot, with the probes and you know we're, we're looking at this infusion code here we're looking at whatever um we would definitely pull in coding expertise as needed which we also had under the compliance on um, uh, the cri umbrella so we could leverage that but that's why that task force had to have a member from him as a as an integral component of that um but we just leveraged it so we didn't have to bring a coder onto this actual team in terms of hiring it as an FTE that lived elsewhere in the organization. It was manageable as a part of their regular uh, workflow. Um, so we, we, we definitely tried to keep it lean. We didn't want to create sort of like a big administrative beast, but 
we did want to be able to, to, to structure it more, which, which we did. And the other thing that we did that Rick was integral to was we decided to sort of gap ourselves is what we called it. Developed something called gap analyses. And we followed, we, instead of recreating the wheel, we just said, let's just do what the OIT does. When they do an audit, they talked about the structure, the methodology, the scope, the, the intent, what you're looking at. And then we did the same thing. Um, and, and we would report these analyses out to the, to the steering committee, as well as up to the compliance committee or the corporate integrity committee. Uh, some of these were actually taken to the board at times as needed. So we were doing all that legwork um, in, in the background. And, and we did this, we started in 2011. Yes. At time. And by the 2000, I think it was 2019, the DOJ <clears throat> came out, excuse me, with a um, very big statement uh, around, and it's actually an incredible piece to read, about when they're looking at an organization, the OIG has done an audit, there have been some findings, there's going to be a CIA, a corporate integrity agreement. What do they look at in terms of uh, either either finding penalties or you know what their expectation will be for corrective action? They said that they take into account exactly the types of things that we were doing with GAP. Self-auditing. Is there Are there people involved that this is their job? Uh, is there annual reporting? Is there quarterly reporting? What kind of things are they looking at? And we sort of ended up taking over a lot of almost like an internal audit function for the revenue cycle risks. Um, so that that was nice. That came out about eight years after we started, but it validated sort of what we were doing. Um, Rick, do you want to talk a little about about the gap analyses and how? Hey, we before we sure. actually hit that realm, I have to have take us out to a break. So we will be right back, and Rick will lead in with that. Claim Capital is a team of ex Epic staff focused on preventing denials. Instead of showing what was denied, which is the standard for other solutions available today, Claim Capital pinpoints why claims are denied. By training machine learning models on an organization's claim and remittance data, Claim Capital can identify the causes of denials and recommend changes in EHR build or workflows to prevent them from happening in the future. With a completely HIPAA-compliant infrastructure, no software implementations, and a zero-risk pricing structure, organizations can quickly and safely recover lost revenue. Fine Medical serves a growing base of more than 800 active hospitals and health systems nationwide. Their best practices are hardwired through technology solutions, proven to help hospitals achieve sustainable top performance. Their well-published results include improving financial performance, physician and staff alignment, patient experience, compliance, and patient safety and quality measures. Learn more at finemedical.com. That's V-Y-N-E medical.com. And we're back. All right. So we're back to go into our debate section, also known as our hot industry trends section. Uh, so here we'll discuss industry trends, out-of-the-box ideas, or other topics that get you thinking. Okay. okay. So Gretchen was mentioning that beginning back in uh, November of 2011, we started to do analyses. And the analyses were the result of the reviews that we conducted. And what we did was we had a very structured format for the gap, um, as was mentioned. We stated the purpose of it. We stated what the statement of risk was. We talked about the scope. <laughs> we talked about the background. We talked about the methodology. We talked about the documents reviewed. Um, then the next session, a section, excuse me, was assessment and findings. And that was the critical part, because without it, you can't make recommendations, nor can you determine what your next steps are. One of the things that I would like to share with everybody is that when we talk about these gap analysis, and I'm going to give some examples of it, um, over the years, we did well over 100 gap analyses. And one of the things that I'd like to point out, and I know um, 
Betty and Gretchen were both very supportive of this is when we did an analysis and we all reviewed them and there was a lot of no, this it's actually A, not B and what have you. And we all reviewed them and, you know, came to an agreement before we published them. But if we found that we weren't where we needed to be as an organization, we would determine how quickly we would do a follow-up gap analysis and on some of them, we did them for years mm-hmm. because it just we just never really got to where we wanted and it wasn't anything we were going to let go. So um, the other thing that I wanted to just reiterate, and Betty and Gretchen have mentioned this, is that um, the gap analyses were kind of based on things we knew internally was based on PEPA report analyses, um, concerns that may have been raised by the revenue cycle or revenue integrity, um, ancillary areas could have been raised by the MAC, RAP, and you know all our other friendly government audit groups. So some of the, what I wanted to share too is um, when we first started, we were doing, um, the first gap analysis we did was the two days and less stay for chest pain. Remember that one? <laughs> it, it, it was just great. And then we went to, we did one day stays for circulatory diseases, two day stays for esophagitis, gastroenteritis, and miscellaneous digestive orders. And, you know, as Betty and Gretchen were saying, this is where Betty taught me Clem. Mm-hmm. I learned how to speak clinical, and um, I, I understand what these things were. We did, then went on to do, um, when the two midnight rule came into being, and I know this was critical for Gretchen, she said, we have to know, are, is, are we doing it correctly? Is it working? Um, we had we had estimated, uh, or someone in finance had estimated what the uh, financial impact would be to the organization overall. And like most hospitals, it wasn't favorable. And I'm not going to go into the exact numbers, but we did an audit. We generated reports. Um, we came within $300,000 of supporting a large number. And we were, that was probably one of the most fun audits at all. We kind of went crazy figuring out formulas. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we also talked about oh, cardiac defibrillators and post-acute care transfers. Um, I know Betty, thankfully, uh, with her background, helped us deal with a lot of cardiac issues. And cardiac defibrillators and, and heart casts. And, um, but then another thing we also did was Part B payments. Uh, I could go on and on and on, but I think I'm just going to stop right there because I can talk about this for hours. What well, uh, you know, Daniel and I, uh, we talk on the side during these as well. <laughs> We'd love to hear some of your guys' stories and like what were some of the positive outcomes that have come from it? Um, you know, you guys did a great job covering like structure and overview and what what's in scope but we'd love to have our listeners actually hear the success that you guys have been able to achieve um at cedars and then i know you know rick in your new role and gretchen now back full-time with us you've been implementing gap and taking that your knowledge from that elsewhere so we would love to hear how um you know it's come to um have some positive results and I would love to add on to that. I would, if there's like an early story versus a later story, just to hear like the the trend over time, I'm an implementer. So I'm putting my implementer hat on and I'm like, oh my goodness, like how could we implement this in a successful way? And uh, knowing how it's going to progress over time, it'd be really interesting just to hear the the beginning and how how it's really developed over um, later stage. One, one thing I wanted to finish on Rick's discussion around the gap analyses, which uh, which was great. I, I think the other thing is we developed a schedule of audits. And so it was, some of them were evergreen. So we knew this was going to be a hot topic for the, uh, for the OIG and, and Medicare in general, like uh, vent management over 96 hours. These are things that lead to additional payments and so forth, discharge disposition. 
Um, we did those as evergreens. We did them at least once a year, if not twice. You know, we, we took very seriously the overpayment and refund process. We had to validate that refunds were processed within 60 days of finding. So again, we, we, we structured these things. We put these out. Some were evergreen. Some were issue specific. If we felt, as you noted, there was a risk to the organization, something specific to us. But oftentimes we just kept them going because they were evergreen and we were doing the review internally. The other key thing about gap analysis, if you gap yourself and you find an issue, make sure you document the refund of whatever you've done. Because it's very important that you don't just identify, but that you correct what, what you found. Um, so I, I just kind of wanted to, to make sure I mentioned that. We have so many funny stories from our experiences. Um, Benny, do you, do you have any off the top of your head you wanted to share? <laughs> well, you know, we've had so much success in things that um, we're all, I think we're all really proud of. Um, but as Gretchen said, some of the strange things that you see, we had um, we had an account patient who was receiving chemotherapy and she had had eight encounters, all of which were denied. We appealed all of them. And, I remember, and keep in mind, same person, same disease, same care process, eight denials, appealed all of them, four got reversed and four didn't. And they're sort of like, well, wait a minute. They're all the exact same thing. So we took them to the ALJ. And the ALJ sort of kept saying, wait a minute, you're telling me this is the same patient and it's the same disease and she got the same drug. Yep. And he was sort of like, I don't understand. I said, join the club. You know, we don't either. <laughs> and they all got reversed. Yeah. But, you know, you and, and these were all gone. These all were appealed to the same contract agencies. They went to Noridian. They went to Maximus, or I think at that time, I forget who our QIC yeah. was. Yeah. But we, you're like, how can you find, find positive on four and negative on four? When they're all the same thing you know we have a great tape of an alj case that we had a bariatric case and the contractor kept saying but they didn't have a log and the judge kept saying you don't require a log you can't hold a provider responsible for something you haven't told them you require wasn't I think, yeah. exact words you can't make stuff up yeah, he actually did say that. He said you can't make stuff up, and he was getting he was angry. I know he was angry. Gretchen, I just found that tape because I was cleaning up my my file cabinet drawers. <laughs> I found the CD. I would love to keep. That. Yeah, I, I'm, I've got it. I've got it. The case that Betty points out was indicative of the quality of the audits being conducted on hospitals, and at some point, how the incentives for these rack auditors and other entities were were in i hate to say inappropriate but it, it you know it was clearly the quality wasn't there of the reviewers and the auditor we actually tried to do them a favor by calling them and saying hey you actually denied four of the same eight and and they were like oh no we know we're going to keep it going so at that point we actually took I, I was working through the um american hospital association at the time i'd been working with cha and then aha and they wanted some representatives to come to D.C. to, to testify in front of, of Congress of, about some of these audit experiences. And, and so I went a couple of times. I, I got to go and, and testify in front of the House and in the Senate. And we brought forward this example often as a representation of the challenges hospitals were, were, were faced with. We had to defend this. We were obviously victorious in this particular case with these additional four cases that were denied. But the cost to, to defend the money that we had already been paid for maybe five years ago was egregious and it was ridiculous. And, and we could exemplify that. And I would put a little asterisk by this, obviously we're very passionate about this, but we are not saying that hospitals, organizations, providers, et cetera, are not, we're not above audit. We're not above review. No one's saying that. We're just requesting some reform into the process that makes it more meaningful for all meaningful for all of us. I think in addition to that, what I'm also hearing is 
if you have proven something and you have the track record, you should stand behind that track record and work your way through the government review process so that we can help make an influence change and influence that even the federal auditing programs get a better opportunity and that they're they're self-gapping, right? And they're trying to figure out what did they do wrong in their review process, especially that four cases shows that, right? Like four cases in, four cases out, but it's the exact same, like who, why, where's your education opportunity? Um, and versus just trying to say, well, we stand behind it and clearly they couldn't, so. Good point, yep, very and, and, and something I might add too is that not only were we um, doing this to defend ourselves, you know, from government audits, but Gretchen and I were um, members of um, several committees on the California Hospital Association side. And people were very interested when we would talk about our gap program, they were very interested. And as a result of that, I know I was um, invited to speak twice, once at an HFMA uh, meeting, and the other one, Betty and I went to an AHAM meeting so we could talk about the gap, because we thought this was the right thing to do. We, you know, we worked and we cried, we laughed, you know, we wanted to um, knock each other in the head at times, but it worked. We, you know, so when Gretchen, Gretchen talked about being very passionate, we put so much effort into this. We were very passionate about it, but we wanted to share what we learned, you know, with the healthcare community. Yep. Gretchen, that that leads me to ask you about the story of when you had to go testify at Capitol Hill. Well, that was Gretchen. I didn't. <laughs> that was, I did, and it was it was uh, it was helpful when I had the cases, like I just mentioned, um, you know, that would bubble up from the audits. And we also, and we mentioned this in the testimony as well. Um, there were a few other hospital, obviously representatives. There was four of us, and. Um, the, the the what was it called when they were going to give us that um the, the, basically the racks were saying the alj process was just a bottleneck they had too many audits oh, oh, yes. and there was a there was an offer on the table for hospitals to take i think it was 68 cents on the dollar yes and um and and, and a lot of hospitals did not have the infrastructure that we were able to have at Cedars, Cedars being the kind of organization that it is with the resources that it has, wanted to be a leader in this area on behalf of Cedars, but also all providers in the fight, in the fight so to speak. Um, and so we took on a very proactive advocacy type of role, which is why we participated um, with, those, with those DC experiences. Um, and uh, so that's where we, we felt like we had something to share of, of meeting. And um, it was just very fun. It was very, it was, you know, it was very nervous to go up there and testify in front of uh, the, the house was kind of really laid back. The Senate was really intense and it was like one of the big oak old rooms and bunch of people looking super formal. I was, I was surprised at the difference between the two, um, but we got our message out there. It was well-received. They did do some rack reform. Um, I do believe now that we're out of the pandemic that the the gates are going to open again, and it will be very important for organizations to have some sort of structure in place to be able to respond. Telehealth audits are coming. There are a lot of new regulations out there with regard to uh, wasted drugs and implementing of those new codes and so forth. That's going to be hot, and they're going to be really looking at a lot. You better have sort of like some infrastructure to handle this. Um, and Daniel, you mentioned something about, you know, beginning to end as an example of the, after we implemented, what were the changes that we experienced? So one of the, the one of the key questions and probably one of the reasons we got such a green light to move forward with developing this committee was, or the program was nobody can identify the risk. I mean, is it 4 million? Is it 20 million? I mean, what is that gross charges? Is that net receipt? We didn't know. We had a spreadsheet flying around trying to answer 
people's you know audit questions as quickly as we could. So we put this database in. It took a year to get the database really in in good shape for us to be able to use it in a meaningful way. We had to identify certain fields. A lot of it was you know come with. A lot of it was custom. Um, but at the end of the day, and at the end of that year, we were able to identify what was at risk. What was at risk total? What we had successfully defended? What we had lost? And what was in the works right now at some point in that process? And that proved to be super meaningful to the organization. We understood what our risks were. Um, and we also could show the results and the impact of having a program like this. We didn't have denials for lack of responses anymore. We were able to tell the, the RAC auditors and CMS when they wanted to give us 68 cents on a dollar, no thanks, we're good. We get we get pretty much get a 99 cents on the dollar when we defend ourselves all the way through and we also get interest. So we're gonna hold back. We were not one of the hospitals that went for that agreement. Um, and, and again, because of Cedar's position and what they have always wanted to be in terms of a partner with other providers and, and, and providing leadership and advocacy. So that was very meaningful. As a matter of fact, the, the data that we had became so helpful, it, was even, it even served the function of being able to identify the, the financial risk at the end for our external auditors. They would look at that number. They felt that was robust. They kicked the tires with the database. They said, yep, this is solid. So we were able to answer that, that piece for the organization as well. Maybe one, one other question I have, because I've been doing a lot of like, oh my goodness, OIG, ALJ, all these different acronyms, and a lot of it's federally based. I know that like it's an overwhelming amount of federal governments. Is there also a state aspect that you all deal with and having to navigate through that got included in this program? It's more regional with the, the MACs, the Medicare audit contractors. So before that, you used to have different entities that did professional and technical or hospital. They brought them all together years ago, and, and now they're called MACs. They do both. Those entities are regional, and they do the issues can differ by MACs, which is something that is a little annoying to hospitals because we, we prefer the national coverage decisions versus the local coverage decisions because that becomes a real gray area. Um, and I will say this, one of the amazing things about Betty was in this role <clears throat> was her ability to form relationships, meaningful relationships with these, these external auditors and entities. Everybody was trying to do the right thing and in the most efficient way possible. The Max didn't want to audit us, audit us for things that weren't meaningful, that weren't really at risk to the fund. And so we, we worked together uh, many times to uh, collaborate and, uh, and we helped them understand our issues and what we were saying, what we were finding and, 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 and vice versa. And that ended up being an unexpected uh, win of, of the program. And I, and I think it's the program, but I also think it's very much Betty. Um, so, you know, you have to have a Betty. If you have a Betty, then you're really in good shape. Um, but yeah, that, that we, then the state level is the Medicaid issue or the Medi-Cal. And there were some there were some audits relative to Medi-Cal, but the lion's share, I'd say, was Medicare. And eventually, this 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 group, the team that Betty put together, these these nurse auditors and case managers, ultimately were able to take over high level uh, commercial denials as well, because again, the expertise, that clinical expertise, is what was needed in both areas. So we were able to do the government audits. And then we were also able to help and defend the, the commercial audits, which was huge. Perfect. Thanks for sharing. Um, we're going to, on that note, take a quick break and we'll be right back. There are thousands of medical offices and facilities across America, each navigating through changing regulations and reimbursement models while striving for positive patient experiences and outcomes. A common element in each of these facilities is patient access the front line of both the revenue cycle and the patient experience. Though diverse in facility size and geography, patient access professionals unite around a common purpose, enhancing the overall patient experience to increase patient satisfaction and outcomes. Through it all, one organization is there to educate, connect, inform, and pave the way toward the future of patient access. The National Association of Healthcare Access Management recognizes the changing role of patient access professionals and their increased importance. And welcome back. 
All right. So normally we jump into the Wilshire Lab where we answer questions from you all, our listeners. But today we're going to have some fun uh, and do a rain check on the Wilshire Lab. Uh, just for everyone here, and I'll start with Betty. Just any final thoughts on our conversation today, and where you're, where you're, where, what's what's on your mind as we wrap up today's call? Oh, actually, uh, just a great pleasure in hearing everything that's been said because I think that again, um, you know, I came over to um, compliance and revenue integrity with absolutely no knowledge about the financial side, really nothing about government audits other than Gretchen said to me, I've got 250 rack audits, you know, will you work them for me? Um, and and I think we put together not only a very good team, but as Gretchen said, we also were able to build relationships with these outside entities. You know, and I'm frequently on calls with people saying, oh yeah, the Mac's so horrible and this is so horrible. And I'm always going, oh wow, no, they're not. And we built relationships that we both you know, said to each other, we're here for the same purpose. And that is to not only stay within the regulations, but also to provide the best patient care and the best outcomes for our patients. And we can work together to do this. You know, Noridian finally started doing outreach to providers to get their opinion on what could we do better? How could we do it better? You know, where are the things that get in your way? Um, Maximus who is our, our QIC, put in an electronic um, submission process for your second level appeals. And they reached out to us to be their, their test site for it because of the relationship we have built. And I think that what's so important is not only for a provider to have this structure, but for part of that group, whatever you want to call it, to see the importance in developing these relationships and how if you stand behind what you believe and take it through the proper channels, how you can impact things, not only for your organization, but for across organizations, across the country, given that our MACs are over areas that involve all sorts of states, you know? I mean, we got an LCD changed to cover something that not only impacted our patients, but impact all patients with that disease. And I think that's what is so wonderful about doing something like this. And I think that hopefully is what came out from everything that we all had to say. Rick, anything, any thoughts from you? Oh yeah, I, mean, I, I just think that the process we put together was phenomenal. Took us a while to get there. It wasn't always easy, <laughs> um, but you know what? In In the end, it was worth it. And we build some really great relationships, as Betty was pointing out, internally and externally. Because what we learned is that even within Cedar sinai people wanted to do things right. They may not have known they weren't until we let them know. And then one of the things we would do is we would help them develop a corrective action plan and we'd roll up our sleeves and get in there with them and meet with them. And so we were able to overcome some of these things. So I just think it, it's such a great process. And, you know, it's something that any other company coming into Cedars, at the time we were all there, we had all the documentation. Oh, did we do an analysis on this? Oh yeah, here it is. <laughs> You know, how many copies would you like? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I just think it was phenomenal. And I personally learned a lot. Was... I think I would just end it by saying it was very meaningful work, like you're saying, Rick, and meaningful uh, across um, multiple entities. And it was fun to see change. It was fun to get organized. It was, it was a great use of people's talents and skill sets as well. And, um, and, you know, I think we sort of set, set the standard for, um, for this type of review. And it's been very much, it's been very fun for me to uh, sort of speak with other organizations about this through my role at Wilshire and sort of help them devise things um, in, the, in this area as well. Um, and, uh, you know, we just really had the A team with Betty and Rick at, at Cedars and others on our task force. And, uh, you yeah. know, very, very positive experience all the way around.
Cool. Well, thanks everyone for joining. Uh, Betty, Rick, Gretchen, I really appreciate your time here today. If folks are maybe either struggling with audits or setting up a program or want feedback on their program, I want to reach out to you. Uh, Rick, I'll start with you. What's the best way to contact uh, you over email or social media? It would be over email. And my email address is lashrm at outlook.com. Great. What about you, Betty? Probably by email, which is betty.johnson at cshs.org. Great. And Gretchen? Oh, you know. <laughs> email, LinkedIn, Wilshire. I'll answer to all of those. Cool. That works. Thanks all for joining. Evan, want to take us out? Yeah. Well, that's it for us today, everybody. Um, Thanks for listening to episode two, season two, and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. If you liked today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be followed at Daniel underscore TWG. Wilshire Group at TWG Health. On Facebook at the Wilshire Group or on Instagram at Wilshire IT Revcast. Remember, if you prefer to watch, come check us out at the Wilshire IT Revcast YouTube channel. If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts or get additional information on today's episode, email us at Wilshire Podcast at the Wilshire Group. The best way to support this podcast is to review, rate, and subscribe. See you next time. Bye-bye. The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group, experience you can trust, results you can count on.